Well, good morning. This is exciting in a terrifying sort of way. <laughs> it really is. Uh, it's a, a privilege and an honor to speak with you about something I have some passion about, and I, I mean that. It's not just pleasantries. Um, Kale brought this up actually a couple months ago at a lunch meeting, told me I could teach whatever I want, and I told him right away what I wanted to speak on, which is really not normal for me, but the fact is I've been meeting together with several uh, other folks, life, uh, life uh, point folks in small groups, folks like me who like reading the Bible. We read it on our own a couple chapters a day, and then we meet every other week to compare notes, try to learn from each other, keep each other pressing on. And there was a passage that really struck me in January this year. It's out of the book of Ezra, which might not be your first choice if you had an opportunity to teach like this. And, uh, and honestly, it's kind of a dangerous passage because it looks fairly simple, like common knowledge stuff. It's also kind of hard to do. And I also realized that Ezra is a tiny book. It's about halfway through the Old Testament. Most people don't know it really well. I'm guessing you don't have Ezra quotes on plaques in your home. <laughs> and so let me give you a little bit of background. He was a Jewish priest and a scribe. He lived in the 400s BC. He was a scholar who taught and studied the scriptures, but he was not in Jerusalem. He was in Babylon. And the reason he was in Babylon, actually he was born in Babylon, was because the Babylonians had destroyed Jerusalem over a hundred years prior. And, and it was devastating. They destroyed the country, they destroyed the city, they destroyed God's temple. And then they took virtually every person of any consequence from the royal family all the way down to the uh, craftspeople and put them in exile on a four-month journey and dispersed them throughout Babylon. And basically, it looked like it was the end of the nation. Like, this was it. It was over. Until later, Babylon was overcome by the Persians. They overthrew the Babylonians. And amazingly, they reversed Babylon's policy. They let the Jews return home. They let them rebuild their land. They let them rebuild their temple. They let them teach and worship their God again. And that was done in stages through several Persian kings. And one of the groups that went back to Jerusalem was led by Ezra. And this is remarkable. The Persians were not God followers, not the God of the Jewish people. And yet they let them go back and rebuild their land and study and teach about their God, and they supported that with the, uh, with the Persian treasury. It was absolutely remarkable. And what was also remarkable is God had told them this would happen long before it occurred, long before Ezra was even born. God, through the prophet Jeremiah, told them exactly what was going to happen so that they would know when this happened. It wasn't just circumstance, it was God who was behind it. It was a God thing. And with God's blessing, they returned. They fulfilled what Jeremiah prophesied. They returned safely. They rebuilt the city. They rebuilt the temple. And they worshiped and served their God. They made a difference. Most people in life want to make a difference. I want to make a difference. I'm guessing you do too. And if that describes you, then 
Ezra's life and ministry can serve as a model. We're looking today at a couple of verses, just two verses, actually mostly one, in Ezra 7, which you can look up or it'll be on the screens. And it talks about how the fact is that God's hand was on Ezra due to where he had set his heart. Look at this passage. It says, on the first of the first month, Ezra began to go up from Babylon, and on the first of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. Four-month journey on foot. And it says, it was because the good hand of his God was on him, for Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. The state of the heart from God's perspective, is significant. One of the thing about, things about reading through the whole Bible is you don't just find out what it teaches, you also see what it emphasizes. Repetition is a key way that the Bible tells you what things are really important. And the state of the heart is something that comes up a lot. For example, here's another passage that talks about that. Um, back earlier, when the prophet Samuel, the Old Testament prophet, was to anoint one of the new kings of Israel to replace Saul. God told him, I want you to go to anoint one of the sons of this guy named Jesse, but he didn't tell him which one. And so Samuel went, and these, these boys are coming up one by one, and Samuel saw the first one. He's tall, he's handsome, he's the poster child for kingship, and Samuel thinks, oh, that's the guy for sure. But God says this, don't look on his appearance. Samuel, or at the height of his stature, because I've rejected him. Because God sees not as a man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And ultimately, David was chosen. He was the least of the bunch. He was the youngest, the smallest. He was out tending a few sheep while his brothers were out fighting wars for King Saul. But God's not impressed with the external things that impress us. It's the state of the heart that matters to him. And God was pleased with the state of Ezra's heart. And according to this passage, that's because it was focused on three things. Here's the first. It says, the good hand of his God was on him because Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord. Now, Ezra's Bible back then was the Old Testament scriptures. That's what was written so far. In our case, of course, we've got the New Testament as well. And he had resolved not just to read the scriptures, but to study them, to know them, to own them. And he did that because he believed that the Bible was the inspired word of God, that an all-powerful, all-knowing God, if he wants to get his word through to humanity, can get it through to us even through fallible human beings, human authors, and that's exactly what he did. That's what Ezra believed the Bible was the divinely inspired word of God. Christians today believe that as well. And that's why we call it God's word, because like we, Ezra, we believe that's exactly what it is. And I realize also in this culture, though, not everybody believes that. Some are convinced that statement's true, some are not. Either side of the continuum you're on, we're thrilled you're here. If you're unsure, I have to believe since it's the weekend, it's Ohio, and it's not raining, and you're in a church, the odds are you're here because maybe you're a seeker like I was when I came to a meeting like this a number of years ago, looking for the same answers. Is there a God? If he exists, what's he like from the vast array of descriptions out there? Is he a life force like Star Wars? Does he have a personality? And if so, what's it like? 
What does he care about? What does he require of me? But if you are convinced that the Bible's God's word, then one of the key points for us is that we need to be concerned about the state of the heart. If the Bible says that the state of the heart, repeatedly says the state of the heart is what God's concerned about, then what's the state of ours? What is the desire of our heart? Is it to get to know him better? Is it to develop a more intimate relationship with him? And if that's the goal, then, you know, not to parrot the obvious, but what a priceless privilege it is to have this book. God didn't have to provide it. He, he didn't have to tell us anything. He could have kept us guessing about what is like, what he's like, what his character is, what he cares about, what he expects of us. He didn't have to reveal any of that stuff, but he did. He revealed all of it and more in here, and he did it because he loves us. The scripture makes it clear that the Bible is a product of God's love. In fact, people, the Bible calls it, and people call it, God's love letter. It's God's love letter to us. Did you ever get a love letter? And I was advised by a certain pastor here who's younger than me that love letters are so 90s, you know, to get out a paper and pen, I'm showing my age, that's fine. If you want to replace that with some electronic format, what do you, what do you folks do these days? Do you send love emails, love texts? <laughs> or whatever you wanna, you, you get the point. For the sake of argument, let's just call it a letter. There's someone that you really care about. There's someone you want to develop a really intimate relationship with. There's someone you're not even sure they know if you exist. And they're way outside of your league. But there you are standing at the, at the mailbox and you open it up and there's this envelope and you recognize the writing. It's from them. What's the natural thing to do? Do you look at it and say, wow, what great penmanship. Set it on the shelf and never open it? Or, or do you slide it open, you read the first sentence, man, that's good. You put it back, set it on the shelf until next Sunday morning to read, you know, the next one? Of course you don't do that. You're thrilled to receive it. You open it right away. You read it over, and then you read it over again slowly. You're trying to learn about that person from what's written, their feelings, what matters to them. What do they think of you? And then you get it out often to reread it. You might commit some parts to memory. I'm reporting all this for a friend. A friend of mine once, a, an older Christian, years ago, made a statement that changed my perspective along those lines with how I viewed the Bible. I, I had been teaching it. I would study to teach. That's a good thing. But outside of that, I would just read it sporadically. And she encouraged me to read it regularly. But she didn't stop there. She said, I don't want you to just read it. I want you to fall in love with God's word. Not just read it. Not even master it, if that were even possible. She said, fall in love with it. What do you do when you're in love? When you're in love with someone, you look forward to regular time together. You miss it when it doesn't happen. And you don't just show up mentally or physically. You show up mentally. You show up engaged. You pay attention. You think about what's said. You think about it later. And when the time is concluding, you're already looking forward to next time. And that's how she was challenging me to approach God's word. That was decades ago. I have never forgotten it. And over time, it took hold and created a habit 
I plan to continue for the rest of my life. And I'm passing that perspective on to everybody here this morning who's a follower of Christ. And look, we are busy. We live in a hectic culture. Everything goes at light speed. You're always behind. It's easy to slip into approaching God's word as yet another chore. Here it is, the third week, and there's another guy up there telling me I need to read the Bible. And okay, one more thing for the to-do list, you know, do more push-ups, eat more fiber, floss, and read God's word. (laughs) But if that's the way we're looking at it, I'm saying the perspective needs to change. It needs a change of heart. If God tops the list of those with whom you want to develop an intimate, lasting relationship, that alone is reason enough to know and understand and fall in love with his word. Because growing intimate with God's word is key to growing intimate with God. It's where we learn about his character, his heart, his mind, what he cares about. It's where we learn the truth as he defines it and how to discern right from wrong so we can discern what's accurate from all the various views that are out there trending right now or the, the emotions and feelings in our own heart which can be very strong and sometimes can be very wrong. And also they're subject to change. So how do you know what's right? You hold it up to the light of God's word where the truth is defined and you look at how it, how it squares with that. All those things are necessary for spiritual maturity, which the Bible makes clear is something that all of us are supposed to attain to. Every member in the church, every member in the body of Christ, not just the pastors. All of those things are necessary. Paul says in Ephesians 4, he wants all of us to increase in our knowledge of God. The full knowledge, not some of his characteristics and qualities, all of them. To become mature, he says, not to remain infants where we don't know our right from our left, we don't know right from wrong, and, and we're thrown, tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, we don't know what to believe. Instead, he says, we're supposed to speak God's truth in love to one another so that we can help build each other up and cause each other to grow. The Bible makes clear there is no such thing as a mature Christian who's unfamiliar with God's word. And talk about a topic that gets emphasized. This is one that is also. Ephesians 4, 1 Corinthians 3. It shows up in Hebrews 5. Anyone who sincerely desires to follow God is severely hindered if they don't know where he's leading them or what his directives are. And that's why LifePoint pushes this so strongly. Meetings like this, smaller life group meetings where discussion is possible, those things are great for unpacking and learning about God's word. Another huge help is developing a regular personal reading plan of your own. And if you don't have one yet, what, he, what Kale's been talking about, the walk through the book of Luke in 30 days is an excellent place to start. It's not too late to start. God speaks through his word. A solid understanding of God's word is a necessary condition for spiritual growth. But it's not a sufficient condition. More is required than that. Just like air is a necessary condition for human life, but you're going to need more than air 
to survive. And here's what I mean by that. It's possible to read God's word. You could memorize it from Genesis to Revelation, but read it just like any other book and then walk away without any intention of following it. Or we can accept the parts we like and decide we're going to reject the parts we don't like, in which case we're the ones deciding what's truth, standing over God and reducing him to the role of a consultant whom we're free to disregard if we feel like we know better than him. Knowing God's word has to be combined with a willing heart that upon understanding what God says, I will do it. And that was Ezra's example. Here's the second point. We'll build this verse up. Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and it says to practice it. To study it, to know it, to live by it. Live by God's word. This is the definition that Christ used of what his disciples were. He says to the Jews who believe in him, if you abide in my word, abide means that you know my word and you live by my words. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. The definition of Christ's disciple is one who hears, understands, and obeys Christ's teachings. It means to submit to God's authority in all areas of our lives. Not because he's a bully or he has a big ego and doesn't like to be told no, it's because he loves us, he knows what's best for us, and he has the power to make it happen. Look at the next verse. If you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. It's abiding in God's word, living by God's word, that transforms the head knowledge of his truth into the heart knowledge that sets us free. Free from what? Free from sin, from the power of sin, from the enslavement to sin. Freedom that leads to salvation for eternity as we're forgiven of our sins and accepted into God's family. Freedom that leads to spiritual growth, sanctification in this life. As we mature in Christ and we choose God's path instead of another way and our lives align with his plans. How to live, what to treasure how to love others, how to love and serve him. Our part is to choose to cooperate with him. Sometimes that's easy. Sometimes not so much. It's easy to follow God when his will aligns with our desires. Should God decide it's his will for your life to win the lottery, it's not hard to endorse his plan for your life. But what about if he asks you to take a stand on something that might cost you something or give up a habit that you want to keep even though it's holding you back or if he asks you to trust that he has your best interests at heart when you lose your job or you or a loved one is diagnosed with cancer. Always and especially in those hard times we need to trust that his path forward is the right one. It's how faith grows. We understand his word, we take a step of faith, we do what he says, we find out he can be trusted, and now there's a track record. It's a little bit easier the next time. And that deepening faith is what holds us firm when the storms come, and they will come. Look at this first. Those of you who've been reading through Luke, you should recognize this, although I'm, I'm reading this from Matthew. It's in both. Christ says, Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them, and that should sound very familiar, everyone who knows my word and lives by it, may be compared to a wise man who built his house on a rock and the rains fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against the house and yet it didn't fall 
for it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against the house and it fell and great was its fall. Storms are inevitable. You're going to hit storms in life. doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not. Nobody gets out of here for free. And there's no better time than now to build your life on the strong foundation of knowing and living by Christ's word. I learned this lesson a number of years ago. I am not proud of this story, but it illustrates the point, so I'll pass it along in hopes that it helps someone else. A number of years ago, my daughter was doing a summer missions internship in Mexico, working with orphans. And that sponsoring organization allowed churches to send teams down for a week at a time during the summer to help with the effort, to the physical labor of maintaining the facilities for, and also to invest in the kids. And my amazing wife found a church in Kentucky, of all places, that was going during the time my daughter was there and made plans to join them with my two sons. I decided not to go. I didn't think we could afford it all four of us to go, and the job I had at that time was really stressful. But also, to be honest, the part that you don't say is it was outside of my comfort zone. And truth be told, I was dealing with depression at that point in my life for quite some time. And at least in my mind, it was kind of a perfect storm. There was the stress of that job. There was the stress of supporting a declining parent. There was the stress of our children beginning to leave the nest and our changing parental role and not really knowing what comes next. And there was the stress of my own personal work, my own personal ministry in the church, which has been important to me since I was a teenager. It just wasn't going where I had hoped it was going to go. And I was aware I was getting older. Those of you in this room who are in that stage know that there comes a point in your life where doors begin to close. And you know if a door closes, you may not be able to reinvent yourself again like you did when you were younger. And I was starting to wrestle with the notion that the best fruits of my life in general and my Christian life in particular were behind me. And that God had plans for other people, but not for me. And that perhaps at this stage, honestly, I felt like I was being more tolerated by him than loved. I wonder if any of you have ever wrestled with those thoughts. So one day at work, after I'd made my decision, I, I, I took a walk over lunch. It was a particularly stressful day. I was going out to try and clear my head. I was not thinking about the mission strip. I was trying to figure out how to get out of uh, today's mess. And then suddenly, out of the blue, it was not audible, but in my head, it was loud. There was this compelling thought, you need to go to Mexico. Was it a prompting? I tend to think so. I don't know. I don't get those very often. It was not audible. But the message was very clear, and it was a command. It was not a request. And it was so strong that I felt to deny it would be to defy a direct order. And before that walk was over, I had done a complete 180 on my decision about the trip. Which meant that night I had to go home and tell my wife that I was r r r wrong. <laughs> which may have been the hardest part. 
And so after a, a couple of false starts, I choked that out. And after we picked her jaw up off the floor, I, I explained to her what had happened. And we bought another plane ticket. And we prepared for that trip. And then shortly before the date came to leave, a huge door closed. I lost my job on top of everything else. And a lot of things happen. A lot of things go through your mind when that happens, especially if supporting your family is financially is one of your primary responsibilities. I had thoughts, I need to back out. I need to see if I can get a refund on this ticket. I need to start a job search because I know it's going to take a while. But I had my orders. You need to go to Mexico. So in the end... I got on a plane and left with my wife and two sons from Monterey, not knowing where life was going to go from there. It was hot. The work was challenging. It was hard. And it was also wonderful. The work was and also the time spent with the kids. I had a couple of pictures, if we can throw them up there, of some of the things that we did. This was some of the work, working to uh, repair uh, some of the facilities there for the orphans. One of the people standing on the roof, working on the roof, is one of my sons. Painting, some folks were doing concrete. The other one, we were actually at a construction site where a new church was going up. And then there's a couple of pictures here of the kids, too, spending time with them, feeding them. And that one on my left, that's my favorite. She was a real sweetheart. Uh, you know, it's up, it was uplifting to be doing some things that mattered. We're working to improve their lives. We're trying to love and, and minister to them. But the one who got ministered to the most that weekend was me. Partly from the work we did, also from the group we traveled with who had never met us but embraced us like family, and they were so supportive of me. And then there was this night of extended worship at, at one point in the middle of the week. And I, you folks that are Christians, you know God is always present, but there are just some times when you can sense it in the air. And it was one of those nights. His word was being spoken. His word was being sung. And you could just feel his presence. And there were some counselors in the back for anyone who had private prayer requests or things they wanted to talk about and my wife suggested that I go and talk to one of them about the depression that I was experiencing. And I, in all my spiritual maturity, said no at first. It felt too personal. It felt too vulnerable. But honestly, pride was also involved because I was the one who was giving counsel for years. And it was humbling now to admit that I was the one in need. And so I pushed back. And, and like... Most people, when you don't really have a good stand, and you, as you start to realize what you're, the, the ground you're standing on isn't that strong, you push back harder and louder. But do you ever have one of those things where you're, you're in an argument and you're trying to state your case and you're stating it with passion, but as you hear your own words, you realize they don't make any sense? <laughs> and so you keep arguing, but it's almost like in a video game you're trying to fight and the ground is eroding around your feet. And I started to realize... Who knows but that you came to Monterey for such a time as this? You know, what, what could it hurt to go talk to someone? And if you don't go, maybe you'll miss the whole reason that you're here. 
to begin with. So in the end, I got up and I started walking towards one of those counselors with no idea what I was going to say when I got there. And I was good. I confessed my thoughts. I was honest with him, the things I'd been struggling with. And he was great. He listened. I mean, he really listened. And it wasn't like, oh, yes, young Christian, I'm so happy. I mean, he really, you could tell by the eye contact he was tracking with me. And, and he was humble enough to admit that he had struggled with depression too. And somehow I'd been led to the guy that actually could relate almost like God was involved in it or something. And he prayed with me, and we talked a while. And he told me about some things that he had learned in a seminar that he felt had brought him real healing, and I appreciated the talk. And then when I saw him the next morning, he had taken the initiative to make copies of the material for that seminar. He happened to have it with him, and he gave me a copy, which I was grateful for, and I read it. I read it carefully. I read every word. I read it in every spare moment I had there, and I read it all the way home on the plane. And in a nutshell, it said things like this. Over time, our circumstances and our trials can lead sometimes to mistruths or half-truths about God and our relationship with him, and they can creep into our worldview. And if we're not careful, those things can take root, take up residence in place of God's truth and his promises. And it said to ask God in prayer to reveal any falsehoods that I entertained and begun to accept. Things like I was feeling, like my role in my, in my Christian life was as a spectator now and not an active participant on the field. Like God's plans were for others and not for me. Like the fact that I was a disappointment to him who was tolerated rather than loved. And it described a process that I was actually familiar with from the word of renouncing those thoughts and reaffirming God's truth regarding him and me. Truths like Philippians 1.6, that I'm confident that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. He was not done with me. He still had a plan for me. And that plan was going to continue until I went to see him face to face. That's what the Bible said. Promises like Romans 8, that nothing will separate me from the tolerance of God. Oh, wait a minute. It's the love of God, that he loves me. He loves me fiercely, and that nothing will separate me from that love. Nothing, no one. And finally, it talked about after reaffirming what's true, making a commitment to get up, dust off, forget what lies behind, and once again walk with God by faith. And I saw the truth and the wisdom in those steps, and I followed them one by one. And that was 11 years ago. And there was no personality transplant. I am still me, the detail-oriented perfectionist introvert who's tempted to trend toward the, toward the Eeyore side of life, or so I'm told. But I'm not the same. The depression lifted, and it did not return. And I still have down days, but I don't stay down. It, it changed me. My wife confirms this. Even though she waited a year to tell anyone about it because she wanted to make sure it was real. <laughs> now look, some of the details of that story are beyond the scope of the mo this morning, but here's what is in scope.
God's word is not some sort of a quick fix or incantation that you can chant to make all of your problems go away. It's a necessary but not sufficient condition for spiritual growth. More was involved than that. Prayer was involved, community with other believers, the counsel of other believers, affirming what's true, renouncing what's false. But it was the knowledge of God's word and the commitment to follow it that undergirded all of that. That's what gave me the resolve to go where I didn't want to go and share what I didn't want to share. It's what provided me the framework of Scripture in my life to assess the counsel of others and the materials I'd been given and to affirm they were correct and worthy of action. And it was the knowledge of the big picture, the full landscape of God's counsel and what he's like and his characteristics that enabled me to distinguish his truth from the lies that I'd been entertaining and regain my grasp on that truth. And acting on that truth is what brought healing. I knew the truth. And the truth set me free. Just like Christ said. That's kind of how it works. And that leads to the final observation of the state of Ezra's heart, which actually I'm trying to emulate right now. Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. Ezra had set his heart not to keep it to himself, but to pass it along. If you read the next book, Nehemiah, you'll see examples of him doing just that. And in the New Testament, you see examples of it too. Paul, with his disciple Timothy, who turned out to be just a great mover and shaker in the early church, that, he, Timothy was his mentor, or Paul was his mentor, and Paul said to Timothy, the things which I, you've heard and seen in me, in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these things to faithful people who will be able to teach them to others also. Notice there's four generations there. Paul sharing the word with Timothy, suggesting that, or commanding him to share the word with other faithful people who will share the word with other faithful people. One of my mentors said this, people don't drift towards holiness. God's truth needs to be spoken. It needs to be understood. It needs to be modeled. It needs to be taught. And all Christians can play a significant role in the lives of others in the circles of influence we frequent. And speaking of that, I want to add my endorsement to what Kale said, it's Mother's Day. I want to say thank you to your, you moms for all you do for your family, loving your kids, caring for them, providing for them physically, but also spiritually, working diligently to set an example for them and teach them about God and his word. We spoke of Timothy, great leader in the church. Paul was his mentor, but Paul spoke of others of sincere faith who played a significant role in Timothy's life before him. And he calls out by name Eunice, his mother, and Lois, his grandmother. And their faith built a firm foundation in him, a child who was to become a substantial leader in the early church. And it's a reminder that your work is of eternal value. You're fulfilling a God-given command when you do those things. You're helping to shape the next generation. Like Timothy, who knows where it will lead? The work you do is amazing. You are amazing. Thank you. And dads, you're not off the hook either. If you're a parent of, of either flavor, 
Your kids are likely the most significant disciples you'll ever have. So live your life in full view. Let them catch you doing the things that you tell them are important. And among those should be knowing God's word and living by it and sharing it with others. I'm going to close with this. Christ was once asked what the main thing is. He, a good teacher. What's the greatest commandment of all? And he answered this. He said, love the Lord your God. You guys know this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. And he said, all of the law and the prophets, all of the scripture rolls up into that. That is the main thing. Of course, we'll never do those things perfectly. But I'm confident that he who began a good work in us will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. That's the goal we press on until we go to be like him. But a heart that seeks to love God and loves others is the point this morning of everything we're talking about. It's what it's all about. It's the main thing. There's nothing the world needs more in these unsettling times than the bedrock unchanging truth that God provides. And what's needed most from followers of Christ is those who will set their hearts to know God, to love him and to live for him and to share his word. And nothing in your life will give your life more significance. And nothing, nothing at all is more important than that. I want to pray for us and then I'm going to ask Cale to come back and close things out. Thank you, God, for, for your word. Like the psalmist says, it's a light to our feet, a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. May we see it as the precious gift it is and fall in love with it. I pray that you help us all to read it, love it, understand it, come to know you better each day through it and obey what you teach and love others enough not to keep your words of love and truth and freedom to ourselves, but share them with anyone who's willing to hear. I pray that our hearts will truly belong to you. I pray that when you look on our hearts, you'll be pleased with what you see. And I want to say one more prayer while we're praying for those of you who may be seekers here this morning. If you've got questions, don't be afraid to ask them. Any, if you're asking from an open heart, God will give you what you need. But if you're seeking and your questions have been answered, but you're delaying, there's no better time than now to build your life on the bedrock of Christ's word. So if you're ready to do that, in your own words, it's not the words. God looks on the heart. Pray along with me. Something like this. God, I confess my sins, and I ask for your forgiveness. I believe Jesus was your son who lived a life without sin and died on the cross to pay for our sins and then rose from the dead. And I ask for Christ's sacrifice to be applied to me for the forgiveness of my sins. And I ask him into my life as Savior and Lord. And God, thank you so much. You promise in your word that anyone who opens the door of their heart, you will come in and establish a, a relationship with them as your child. Thank you again for your word. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your son. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.